Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and I'm very excited for today's episode. We have another awesome guest on our show today. Today's guest is the General Manager of Field Service Management at GPS Insight. Please welcome to the show, all the way from the other side of the pond, Steve Mason. Hello, Steve. How are you today, sir? Uh, Justin, very well. Thank you. And uh, thank you so much for uh, for allowing me on the show. Really looking forward to it. Um, this is an exciting area and uh, look forward to our discussions. Well, based on the uh, quick introduction that we had prior to today, I feel like we're going to have a lot to talk about. And as we discussed, I think the biggest challenge we're going to have is, is trying to keep the number of topics limited to a, a short form podcast. So let me go ahead and, and get started and ask you the question that we we ask all of our guests at the beginning here. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless or frontline workforce? I, we see it as being um, the impact of a shortage of workforce, shortages in the workforce in terms of, of um, skilled labor. Um, that means that organizations are struggling to hire and retain their staff and develop them. Um, so those frontline workers are under more pressure to deliver deliver service to their customers with a growing expectation of what that service means um, and to take on a broader set of products and all that pressure that goes with it. And that in turn means that some of them look to then move to other organizations, which continues to add fuel to the fire in terms of that pressure. Um, and hopefully over time, increased technology can both make it easier for people to, to eat, but, you know, ease that pressure through providing knowledge at the point where they're delivering service, enabling them to resolve problems more you know, remotely. So you need less people going out delivering service um, and then creating an environment where people feel really comfortable joining this industry field service industry and they can get up to speed and be, be productive much quicker. So I think it's like, it is that shortage, which is putting pressure through the whole cycle. There were a lot of amazing things that you said in there, but one thing that really caught my attention was our need to do better, our collective need to serve the men and women that, that are working in the field to give them knowledge at, at the point of where they're delivering their service. Talk me through that a little bit more. I'd like to drill into that. What, what do you mean by that? And and how do you maybe see that being most effective? Yeah, and no, so, so you've got dimensions happening, such as people taking on board more and more products to support. Um, you've got aging products, new products being introduced. There's this continual cycle of, of um, new things to understand. And you have then the pressure of, you have to, fix this the first time you can't keep coming back uh, to resolve that um it's it's difficult to get support from your peers so easily because everybody's under the same sort of pressure 
um, to resolve those um, resolve those problems. Um, now, in terms of what could be done to help relieve that pressure, um, what we're seeing is one um, um, the introduction of knowledge management inside of the mobile applications that people are using. So, how do I get contextual knowledge to the technicians in the field, um, either through manuals that are there or now chat. So we're seeing applications such as uh, ChatGDP, um, which are almost chat bots, which are interpreting the, the, um, the manuals and then guiding the technician to leverage that technology. So that's new and emerging and exciting um, work that's happening, um, as well as accessing dark data so all of the history associated with the asset and the the um, under maintenance, a type of asset, the customer. So exposing that history in a way where people can say, oh, okay, so three months ago, we, we changed the CPU or four months ago, we had a problem with a valve. And, and again, making it relevant within the context. So I think AI is going to help and that's like an, an emerging piece. But at the moment, it's making sure we've got the right technology in place. Um, also how you leverage or harvest knowledge from, from other workers, which is absolutely key. So how you take your experienced technicians and you make them, you find a way of capturing their experience in a way that can be played back to other technicians in a really helpful way. Um, so those, those things are the key bits to make that help. So increasing product range, um, and then how do you capture that knowledge and make it accessible? Okay. We just filled up three podcasts worth of topics <laughs> to go drill down into further. I'm going to uh, find it difficult to do this, but I want to pause for a moment on those topics. And I want to give the audience a chance to hear a little bit more about the guest we're hearing from today. So tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to have this wealth of knowledge and expertise in this area. And uh, how did you end up at GPS Insight? Yeah. Well, thank you, Justin. So um, I, in my careers had many, many cycles. So I started off with a very technical part of my career, um, um, working in tech support, uh, and then from tech support into consulting, and then eventually running a, um, a consulting professional services, building that practice all around contact centers in, um, you know, um, when people were shutting down bricks and mortar and taking everything online. So mission critical applications there. And then my, my, I morphed my career into a commercial aspect where um, uh, I was in Asia Pacific for 18 months, opening up um, divisions for a company called Rockwell and their, and their, um, their, their contact center range. So that was, that was great fun being on the ground, uh, working in Australia and China uh, Japan, Hong Kong. So that was that was an amazing time. Uh, and then I moved into carrying a bag. And so I was a salesperson with um with CRM when you know when CRM was was exploding. Uh, so I worked through that for a decade. And then for the last 15 years I've been in field service management, um, working for companies like Click Software when they were uh, prior to being acquired by uh, by Salesforce. So ran ran Europe for a period of time, took product lines um, international, um, and then I joined Fieldaware, where I moved out to the US for eighteen months, ran the US operations, um, 
in 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 North America, so from globally there, and then came back to the UK, and then as a COO, and then we were acquired six or seven years later by GPS Insight, uh, which is a US-based leader in in fleet and uh, tracking and safety technology for large fleets across North America, um, and I my role morphed into being the general manager focus on our field service management platforms and taking those to taking those to market in an interesting twist you know i meet this guy on linkedin from western europe and lo and behold we have some paths across like you when you spent your time in the us you were right down the street from where i'm standing recording this podcast right now so it's a big world but it's uh it's also a very small world and that's that's a, an incredible journey. You've had so many varied experiences that, um, you know, I really want to sink our collective teeth into here on this. So I, I want to go back. I'm going to do all of this probably in exactly the reverse order because the, the most recent things you said are fresh on my mind. You said a term that I haven't heard used as it relates to field service management, but it makes perfect sense. And that was dark data. And you talked about exposing the history of the previous work. I've not heard that expression. Maybe I just missed something that's that's obvious, but can you explain to me a little bit more about what you mean by dark data and why is it dark? Why are we not doing a better job of shining a light on that? And, and what are you and, and your team doing to help with that? Yeah, no, certainly. So, so field service organizations have been collecting data, you know, for, for some for decades, but for a long period of time. And, and that data... Um, has been sitting inside of their databases and, and it's dark because they've never had the tools to be able to access it. And quite often the architecture of the systems that they've got um, don't lend themselves to allowing access to, the, to that data. And that's like, you know, you've got the detail of the service orders that were work orders that were completed. What was, what was, um, what was done? How long did it take? What parts were, were used? Who did it? How many times did they have to go back and fix it? When the asset moved from location to location, unless it's joined up, you lose that history. If the asset is then, you know, is moved from to another customer, so a, a supplier brings it back, refurbishes it, send it on, sends it, sells it on to another, or rents it on to another supplier, you know that that data's connections are lost. And so, and so it just sits there as dark data. It's there, but, but you can't access it. Um, what we're doing at the moment is that we are actually streaming that data into a data lake. And then we're using new tools um, um, such as Sigma and Snowflake to expose that data so that we can, we can create um, um, searches and intelligence around really very low level data that's exposed for the first time, shining a light on it, where we can create these insights, which enable people to really view how they're going to deliver service in a very different way, because they can take all of that history into consideration. Um, and so, so that's what we mean about dark data. And it's that technique then to expose it and then leverage it as a business tool to help technicians in the front line to be able to under leverage history to help them to deliver better service and help the organization understand the patterns around failure and how they can improve those to give better service for their customers and that's critical when you look at the organization you look at the trend in the in the industry 
that's gone from, you know, break fix to service contracts to preventative maintenance, and now is going to preemptive uptime as a service type type uh, offerings, where the risk moves from the customer to the supplier because right. it's now the supplier's responsibility to deliver the service to keep it running and if they get that wrong then they're losing money so they need access to that to that dark data so that makes perfect sense and i appreciate you giving me that that clarification so now bringing it back to the concept of technology adoption which is what this show is all about how do we make sure that the humans in the mix aren't left to be the weakest link in that solution because we can throw a lot of technology at this but at the end of the day there's very likely to be especially in a, a service organization there's likely to be a human that needs to leverage the data that we've now exposed and shined a light on to actually affect their day and how they service that equipment or that customer so what do you see being some of the challenges that are happening in terms of you know are the techs embracing this or are you making the available the, the the data and information available to them and they're just ignoring it like talk me through some of the adoption challenges to changing the way that they think about their role and how they can use that information yeah no absolutely and it's all about empowerment so you have you have to um you have to move away from relying on the individual to draw to 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 connect the dots because because that can't be done. I mean, for the very reasons we talked about at the beginning of the you know of our discussion, people in the field, people in operations, are under huge pressure to deliver, and they don't have time to to um, do extensive evaluation and analysis. So so you need to you need to provide them with the right tools, enable them to be able to to do that, and then you need to present that in a way where they can interact with the data. So it's not just dump the data uh, in a half analyzed form allowing somebody to try and work through it is actually providing them an interface that allows them to interact with that data so that they can they can quite quickly be guided to um guided to a set of reasonable outcomes that they can then choose and work from and give feedback from yeah. uh, from that and so that means one, you need to sort of prepare the groundwork in terms of the technology. From a from a company perspective, you need to step back and work out what are the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. Because it's not just digitizing your old processes; it's thinking about what is the what what do, what business outcomes do I want to achieve? What experiences do I need to 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 establish for both the customer and my employees? To enable the to achieve that, and what are the business processes that will facilitate that consistently, and then you look to digitize that new set of outcomes that are required, that new process that leverages the data, leverages technology to achieve those outcomes, and that way you get the more productivity that you're looking for, but you're looking to create a stronger, better working environment for employees and for your customers. You can't, you can't, you can't achieve a good outcome unless you're creating a great positive environment for your employees, because because otherwise their frustration that they can't deliver good service is is in you know picked up by the customer. And you know, and these guys and men and women are the face of the brand to those customers that we're trying to impress every day. Absolutely, and and all the time, as companies, we are 
adding new products, adding new services, things are constantly changing. And so you have to provide the technology to enable that to happen in a, in a very intuitive way, supportive way. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier the idea of harvesting knowledge from other workers, from, from the more experienced technicians to help fill some of the knowledge gaps that might exist with some people on the team that just have less experience or just less experience with that particular product type or whatever the case may be. Have you seen reluctance from the more senior members of the team in sharing that data? I'm curious to get your take on this because I, I, I've witnessed that and I've heard it talked about, but I'd like to see if that's a, a universal issue or if it's just been uh, a few examples here and there. There are examples of it, and and but but it comes down to the company that's providing the service and can they create the right cultural environment of an environment of trust where people are people don't view knowledge as power because then you can put technology in place but if you don't create an environment where you have um, you you people feel comfortable giving away knowledge then 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 the process will fail i, I a past project I worked on, um, a customer put an incentive in place. So to break that cycle, we we went live, and in the process of preparing to go live, and to uh, and then the post live component, they put a competition in place where they gave a spiff for employees, where the first person to um, first person to register a knowledge article of value got uh, on a topic that they got a gift card and um so it was like a bonus and so it turned it on its head where people because well when it started it started slow but when people started to see things that they knew but somebody else was creating a knowledge article about it you know and you know submitting it and then it was um, then suddenly it's like well hang on a minute I better get I better get my knowledge in there, otherwise there's going to be no there's going to be no bonus for me when I do it. And that was a great way of just changing the whole dynamic and getting that through. And that broke that barrier down very quickly. Yeah, that's fantastic. This might be today is Tuesday. We're recording this on a Tuesday. This might be the third or fourth time that this concept of user generated content from the field has come up already this week. So I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with that and curious if in that example where the company was incentivizing the, the field users to submit that content, what type of curation process or evaluation process and rating process existed to make sure that the content was accurate? Because there can be many downsides to user-generated content, I imagine. So how did they mitigate against that risk? Do you Were you involved enough to, to see that level of detail on it? Yeah, I saw some of the key components. So, what people were doing was submitting submitting knowledge on a on a um, in a in a form. So there was a structured form on on their intranet that they could register their knowledge and go in. Um, it got a um, the topic heading got quite quickly categorized and and put up so that so that way people could see that there was content coming and that created the competition. That, that around, oh my gosh, I need to get my claim in as quickly as possible and part of my knowledge. They would then go through a technical validation process in terms of what was it, was it meaningful? Um, was it accurate? And um, so they had they had their own experts analyzing that. Um, and then they had 
um, somebody who's either in marketing or um, product management that was then writing it up to put it into the right structure so that it, the language was clear and intuitive. So a couple of processes from that. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I, I think that is a fantastic idea. And as we, we talk about the aging workforce and particularly in some segments of the workforce, and I think field service is one of them where we do have um, a lot of folks that are nearing retirement and it's, it's a real world issue. And at the same time, we have unfilled positions in the workforce. We have more products. We have consolidation of many of these companies. So a technician that might've been dealing with two product lines before is now dealing with eight product lines, right? So we have all of these topics that make this challenge exponentially greater. And then at the same time, we haven't necessarily given them all the mechanisms we need to capture all that knowledge. And I, I do think it's a, a threat to any services organization today. So I think these are some amazing ideas at how to try to capture that yeah. and, and bring that together. You know, I've heard a lot, there's been a lot of talk over the last probably six to maybe even 10 years now about remote expert capabilities. Um, you know, so solutions that we've talked about before, like Help Lightning and LibreStream and, and solutions like that to try to extend the reach of those employees in a real time. But what you described is a way to kind of gather that data and archive it so that it's available, you know, indefinitely. I think that's a, an amazing way to think about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and there's things that we've discussed in the past around um, where people approaching retirement are given, you know, work at home, right? remote, remote jobs where they have reduced hours, reduced pressure, flexible yeah. working, and, and they can be on, on, you know, on a retainer. And that, that's a great way for sort of to try and, get long tail knowledge, uh, you know, retained in the business. Yeah. And, and give them an off ramp, which is a perfect fit for somebody that's been in the industry for 20 or 30 years and knows everything about, you know, the, the uh, equipment that they're servicing um, and gives them an opportunity to spend their last several years in role in maybe a little bit more physical comfort, literally. Right. Yeah. Um, and a way to actually uh, kind of monetize the value that they have, right, very specifically, and also help the organization at the same time. It makes perfect sense. And there's a, um, um, some of our customers are in distribution, so wholesale distribution. So they will um, distribute heavy equipment and um, complex equipment. And they they have, and this works in, in an environment where they, they have their particular territories, Um and what, what they do is they're looking to aggregate knowledge. So looking to share. So as their technicians are sharing knowledge on their products, because the different distributors don't actually compete against each other, they are because they have their defined territory, then for them, it's you know, they can offer a, a level of, of sharing knowledge, which, um, you know, gives them the, you know, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole because because they can also then offer that back up to the manufacturer. Uh, well, you know, so that's that's a, again a community-based approach to aggregating that knowledge. That's interesting. So, just to make sure I understand what you're saying, because they are not the manufacturer of the product, they're actually in a distribution role. So they are between the OEM and the customer, but they are discovering things about the equipment, the implementations, the real-world side of that story. And so, part of their mechanism now is is being a conduit to get that information from the field and from the customers back to the OEM. Did I understand that correctly? Correct. So it goes up, but they also offer, offer round. 
Yeah. Your, your customers that are that are in this this um, the wholesale distribution with fixed boundaries, and they 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 share their knowledge around and up, so they get this aggregation. We have other customers, um, for example, uh, that um, that are focused on um, using IoT sensors and analyze. So being you know they're offering a uptime as a service, and what they do is that they share the data back up. To the manufacturers so the manufacturer could then take that data into the product to the product management team to understand you know that whole process when it um, fails why does it fail and what could we have done to prevent this next time and is there do we have a problem with a, a chronic issue with a part or something like that that we need to resource from a new vendor and things like that right can, can they can they reduce their warranty claims can, yeah. but which which you know means that is their product more stable right you know sustainable and if they can reduce their warranty claims and they can reduce they can reduce their costs because their cost initial costs can have factoring in for the cost of warranty claims of course so, so it's it, there's an there's an advantage that happens for everybody um and we have um customers which are in manufacturing and what they are doing is they are analyzing you know they they have the opposite they operate via oems and what they're able to do is they're able to leverage the dark data because they're maintaining those assets. So you've got people that are installing it, and then they've got a layer of their own maintenance structure within, within large markets like North America. And what they're able to do is leverage their collected data so that they can identify warranty-type issues faster than the traditional method of it coming back through the distribution networks so that they can they can accelerate the identification, the fix, and apply it preemptively back down through the channel. So saving a fortune on warranty claims. It's amazing. I mean, the minute you shift to really an outcomes-based you know, model and not just selling equipment and maintenance, um, it really just changes the way that you think of, of everything. Yes, and and what you described, it really puts the the customer and the outcomes front and center, and then you it, you back into that in terms of how you service it, how you manage the product, how you source materials, all of those things. Now, you know, it, it completely changes the perspective, and it puts you on the same side of the table as the customer, rather than sitting across from the table just trying to negotiate a deal. Like you, you both have the same goal in mind, which is to keep this equipment up and running as often as possible, so that the business can be successful. Absolutely. And if you think about how the world is shifting from um, an environmental perspective, you have you have organizations which are under pressure to um, adopt environmental social governance, so ESG reporting. Um, and, and they do it, they're doing it for a number of factors. One, they have uh, pressure from an investor perspective because investors are looking to invest in organizations that have good ESG uh, credentials. Because they're looking to bring in capital and people looking to invest in capital are looking to invest in organizations which have good ESG credentials. So it all sort of right. comes down that way. Then their customers are looking at, at, you know, I want to do business with organizations which are more environmentally sustainable as well as competitive and good in the community. And you have employees that want to work for organizations which have that. So you've got lots of pressures that are coming through. And so from a field service perspective, their, their um, fleet operations, so their, um, you know, driving around, you know, has a high carbon impact. Um, the materials that they're using, 
um, again, ha um, has a big supply chain, you know, uh, overhead from that. Um, and so it's the field service organization which is having to figure this out and they need to get access to the right data. And they need to be able to use that data to make improvements, sustained improvements in the business in terms of sustaining a lower average um, emissions for equipment under maintenance, which can be done by making sure that your routes are really optimized, that you're using vehicles with, with lower emissions for the right type of jobs, um, and, and also that you are taking access to your data so that you're fixing systemic problems quicker so that you, you have less need to go out to site um, and, and that whole remote fix. So there's lots of things that they're doing, but they have to do it in a way where they're able to capture that data so that they can report on actual data, put in pro, um, adapt their processes, and then continue to refine their processes and prove that there's a reduction in those key metrics that they've put in place. Um, and so the right type of that evolution, the right type of technology is critical to achieving that. You know, it's interesting when you you talk about all the, the emission savings here, you know, it used to be that when we were thinking about first time fix rates, we were thinking of it from a customer satisfaction standpoint. We were thinking of it from a labor efficiency and cost standpoint. But you make a great point that in addition, those things haven't changed. Those things are still equally important. But now adding, I guess, another dimension to that challenge is also the environmental impact that every time we roll a truck, not only does it cost us more money and fuel and wear and tear on the vehicle and everything else, but there's also an emissions impact to that. And so it just, it doesn't change the metric necessarily. It just makes the metric mean even more now than maybe it did yes. before. Yes, absolutely. And it's a, it, the great, the great thing of that metric is that it's, it's um you know it it's producing a positive return for everybody return right. for the customer um because it's improvement it's a return for the company because their costs are lower and it's a return for the environment um yeah. and there's then then there's a return for the investors because everything rolls up right. so it's just tying that all together creating that transparency is is so it's okay so there's an interesting thing about the um, merging of your previous company, FieldAware, with GPS Insight now, and it, you know, it kind of begs the question about these field service technicians. Their primary job is is fixing equipment, but they're also driving a vehicle. And so, some of the things that you just talked about with route optimization, that's something that we hear about a lot in traditional delivery organizations right? Anybody that's uh, courier services and, and food and beverage distribution are thinking a lot about route optimization. We hear about that a little bit less traditionally in field service. And it sounds like you're kind of merging those things together. So are you saying that field service technicians are also being thought of as drivers and their vehicles and their fleets we need to be thinking about in the same way that a, a core delivery organization would think about? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's something which um, as Chris Oldham from um, uh, Oldham from Field Service News would say, "Are are field technicians professional drivers?" And and when you think about how long, um, how much of their day is spent driving between jobs, the fact that you can't hire a technician generally unless they've got a driving license, um, and 
how much you spend on trying to coach technicians to do a better job in terms of fixing problems on how they interact with customers, et cetera. Yet the bit that happens in between the between sites, um, you know, that data has been collected. It's often being reported into a fleet management system that somebody in a different part of the business is looking at retrospectively. And nobody in the field service, very few people if are looking in the field service part, thinking, how are my drivers driving? Are they driving safely? Am I putting them under pressure where uh, I'm saying this is a P1 incident, you need to be on site. And I put pressure on them. And now they're speeding down the freeway, um, crossing lanes, um, braking harshly, potentially having an accident. They could lose their license. And if they lose their license, then now they've got to go get another engineer. Everybody and, and loses. Everybody loses. And yet, and yet all of that data is there. So one of the things that we are doing is that we are um, bringing that data and creating it inside of the field service environment so that planners and dispatchers can actually see when people are driving ba badly so that they can analyze and coach people to, to drive more safely, which means that that's better for their livelihood. It's better for the environment. It's better for the and it's better for the local community that those that they drive safely. And then plus they can consider in their scheduling policies how they can make sure that they are scheduling with enough time and consideration and they're communicating to customers, you know, preemptively when when or proactively when people are going to be late, setting right. appropriate expectations. So that that sense of um, responsibility. You know, because ultimately the company's accountable. If something dreadful happens, they're, they're corporately responsible for it. So it's now empowering them to actually make this, to deal with the problem proactively and to improve the environment for everybody. Ultimately, the technician is the one at the controls of the vehicle. But I do think that there is a significant impact from the culture and the leadership, the style of the organization in making sure that safety remains the absolute number one priority and that, you know, SLAs are important, of course, but they're not more important than safety. And if we let that message get twisted around for the field service techs and they think it's okay to speed or, you know, maybe roll through a yellow light or speed through a yellow light uh, in order to get to a client on time, it's it's counterproductive in the long run. But that takes a, a lot of discipline from a culture standpoint to make sure that we're prioritizing safety for the benefit of all involved and just for the general public. Oh, absolutely. And, and if you look at um, the service council, um, they do an annual survey of field technicians and, up to, and, and, and um, uh, operational managers in field service. And they have over 2,000 respondents now. This year, when the data comes out, uh, I was working, uh, uh, we were doing a, um, a webinar with them and some customers on this topic. And, and they um, one of the, the trends they've identified is that field technicians are cynical that the company has their best interests at heart. And and this comes back to, I think, largely that, that they're under such pressure to get the job done. There isn't enough resources, but it, but it comes out in terms of, of well, if I've got to do all this work, they're not, not thinking about my safety. Um, and so, and yet, and yet the reality couldn't be further from the truth, I am sure, because, 
because companies do and are responsible in how they look after their employees. We, we have one of our customers, they implemented um, um, the field service, but they also put the cam, we, we, do, we also do um, AI-based cameras that face it, that look out, monitor yeah. the road, as well as look in and monitor the driver. Now, people think, oh, it's big brother, you're, 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 you know, you're just trying to track me. You're just trying to trying to see what I'm doing. But the reality is, if if you're on your phone, that's not a good thing to be on when you're driving because yeah. you're not attentive to what's happening. And so the company shouldn't be sending you messages from that. Um, so it's it's a loop that's going on. And uh, and if there is an accident, uh, we have one where where literally the driver was driving along, and this big truck switched lanes and took them out, took out, fortunately that their driver was okay, took out the car behind, everyone was okay, but the things were wrecked. But being able to show exactly what happened, because the, the 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 other truck, which switched lanes, they said that it wasn't their fault, but when you can show the evidence, all the stress was off of the technicians because you know there was proof you were driving along doing exactly the right thing it was this other this other vehicle was that was at fault um so now they're they don't have sleepless nights you know they don't believe that they're not being not being trusted etc um and so it is it is all positive it's all part of the mix of how do you make a safe environment for for employees I think what you just described is a great example of of how things are communicated and the impact that it has on the psychology of those who are affected by that. I know I've been around GPS tracking solutions and it's the number one pushback. Every person that drives a vehicle in a fleet wishes that they weren't being tracked. It feels uncomfortable. I know it would feel uncomfortable for me too. But the reality is for the 98% of the drivers that are doing their job exactly the way that we'd want them to be and are conducting themselves professionally and are staying within the laws and all of those other things, it actually protects them to make sure that we actually have a digital track record of of everything that they've been doing right. And yes, yes that is unfortunate in my hypothetical example. If 2% of the people are doing something wrong, then yes, it is going to hold them accountable and, and call them out for that. But it really protects the overwhelming majority of the team that are probably doing things the way that we need them to. And that unfortunately sometimes is lost in the messaging and how we think about change management. And I think that's such a, a a negative of so many of the projects that we see deployed with technology. And it actually speaks to something else I wanted to ask you about because when we think about change management and we're rolling out technology to the men and women in the field, there's an over emphasis on getting the technology out to the field. But when you and I first met, you you pointed out something that I agree with, and I'd like you to share with our audience about the impact of that change on everyone else in the organization too, because it tends to be that it's not just the technicians that are changing their process and the things that they do, but it's also impacting the others in the organization that are in the back office and maybe supporting them. Can we spend a few more minutes on that? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, technology affects the back office as well as the as as well as the um, uh, the technicians in the field. And you, when you think people are moving from a from understanding their process, so a position of strength to through change, and we know that people you know, as much as we all say we embrace change, there is a degree of anxiety, whether it's a little bit to a lot, because, you know, understanding the process is power. Suddenly the process changes 
and and you feel like you've lost power and it's and, and you need to relearn and adapt and and people want to you know continue to do a good job from that so there are so many different ways that you can introduce technology i think one of the examples that i gave was um was in the uk where we had a we had a large um trades-based building firm um they had probably six about 750 tradespeople across we had they had depots up and down the country um and they wanted to have this rapid rollout and to support the rollout what they did was that they hired a large bus um or coach and they had it fitted for training and they would go to the depot um they would do the training and uh, they would cover the dispatcher training as well as the as well as the engineer technician training. Um, and then when they had completed their training, they were given their first job. So dispatchers scheduled it and sent them their first job. And the first job was to go out and do a safety inspection on the vehicle. And so they could complete the whole job end to end. And if that went successfully, then that's great. Then they would go off. If they felt uncomfortable, they could go back in and they could do some more training. And then when that, that depot was up and running, then they would go off and do the next one. So they would they would literally traveling around the country with this this rolling rollout. But what what it meant was that there were there was good positive news coming in the organization because people felt comfortable with the technology. It, it got rolled out aggressively, but it wasn't this massive big bang where people were saying, "I'm confused. The project is set up for failure on the first day." But it was it was just growing quickly, all based on success as it went through. I think that is such a great story. And you know, I think whether you use a bus or whether you have some other creative approach, the thing that the takeaway for me from that story is that adoption of the technology wasn't expected to just happen on its own. And I commend the team that was involved in that project with you for being creative, for being deliberate and thoughtful about the impact of the organization and particularly the men and women on the front lines that were going to be you know, most affected by this. I think that was a really creative solution to, to solve the problem. And you talked about a lot of change management things in there. You know, there's a, There could be a feeling of overwhelm. For the men and women on the front lines that they're just getting bombarded with all of this change and having to drink from a fire hose. And so the way you describe that story, where it was kind of doled out to them incrementally and allow them to learn and achieve some success and, and build their confidence as they were building their competence in, in the software, I, I think that's a, you know, that's a clinic on on how to do this right. Now, maybe every organization isn't going to do it with a bus. And I think that's a nifty, you know, cute idea to, to, to do that. And obviously it was effective in this case, whether you have a bus or whether there's a different mechanism, obviously I work for a company that can help automate some of these processes too. Um, but, but I think more important, more importantly, it's just being deliberate and thoughtful and just thinking about the impact that this is going to have in the organization. I, I think that will put your project at a significantly higher chance for success just by giving it some time. But in reality, what we often see is the training and change management is like an afterthought at the end. 
you know, we've blown the budget on the discovery process. We may have blown the budget on some of the technology. We underscope things and we're now trying to catch up with scope. And so people say some version of silly things like, well, we don't need to train them. We'll just get the stuff out in the field and, you know, we'll, we'll let their supervisors support them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. They, so, they can use, they can use a smartphone. They can pick this up. Yeah. I I've said this, I've probably even said it on the podcast before, but I've literally had an executive at one of the largest companies in the United States tell me they bought iPhones for their delivery drivers so that they wouldn't have to train them. Literally those words came out of his mouth. And I said, that's the problem that exists in many organizations. And that organization had more than 10,000 delivery drivers that were impacted by that level of thought around change management, because it's not just about it being an iPhone and figuring out how to do FaceTime. This is a complex enterprise application and we're dealing with customers and in their case, billions of dollars of transactions were going to be going through those applications, but their mindset was, oh, it's just an iPhone, so we don't have to train them. And it's just silly yeah, and careless. It is. And yet, the you know, when you look at projects, um, especially those that have a that have a compelling go live date, you know, I need to get off my tech off of the current technology. I've got a new contract which is coming up. Yep. Whatever those are, you have that that sort of, you know, you can't really slip it. And and it goes and, it, and end to end. So you, you look at the the cycle of I need to look in the market and then decide um, what technology I'm going to have to replace it. So they'll have that, but what they won't map out is okay. If I'm going live on this date, I need to make sure that I have enough time for my um, user acceptance testing, so that if I find something that's not right in the process. And it's not just the technology. Oh, you haven't configured something right. There may be you have to adapt the process because it doesn't actually, how they envisioned it working, how they modeled it isn't quite right. So they haven't got enough recovery time from that. It's literally, we've, we've been in some jams where we're doing UAT almost before we go live. And, and then you do training and you're doing live, you know, if you put enough time in your project plan to say, user acceptance bedding in the worst thing that can happen is you find nothing of significance and you have more time then to do a soft launch um you can train your technicians you can start to introduce you break it down so that you have smaller groups going live and phasing it out so so that is so key but that all comes from planning it plans go live be realistic about that final critical phase um, so you don't jeopardize the knock-on effect, which is resistance, having to recover the project, impact on customer experience, you know, an overemphasis on the on the on the change management, that that uh, trough of despair. You've got to move everything up because because it's that that ability to avoid it has been compressed, and that they then need to look forward into their project in terms of when am I going to start it. When am I actually going to do my selection process? When am I going to make my contract? And be as a committed to those early stages because they need to protect the last part of the project to make sure that the go live is, is, is smooth. And that makes a huge difference on return on investment. I could not have said that better myself. So I appreciate you sharing that. And the only other thing I would add to that is, you, you know, you talked about if the worst case scenario is that everything goes really, really well, and it affords us just a little bit of extra time to maybe create a few more waves or make the waves a little bit smaller. 
and you know ease things out in the field, that's okay. If that's the worst case scenario that happens from being super proactive and, and deliberate about your planning. But you know, to your point, most of the time, those things, the mistakes are made early, early on in the project by not allocating that time at the end. And so we look at the deadline as, hey, we're going live on October 1st. That's the day that we're going live. And we're not backing into that to allocate all of this time that you just described there. And I do think that that's a a fundamental flaw. And I know any project managers that are listening to us and program managers are going to say, oh, we always include that time. But I think that the key point that you made is that those allocations aren't done with the same level of discipline that other elements of that Gantt chart are done with, yeah. right? Yes. And, and I think that's where it kind of breaks down a little bit. It's like where there's an optimistic view of the project in the beginning. Oh, we'll have plenty of time to make up for it. We've got some padding here in, in the project plan. The reality is all that padding gets consumed and we find ourselves sacrificing things that are perhaps the most critical. Yeah, no, absolutely. When, when you think that that on projects, you get adopt, adoption is key. The stronger you can make your adoption at the beginning, the easier it is to then move people, the adoption level up so that people don't drift back to the to the to the old process. And, you know, in, in good projects, the old process isn't just the undigitized version of what you've gone live it is, you know, you, you're, you're operating now on your new strategic um, process, which is which is going to move your business forward. So you need to stop people going back. Unfortunately, that has to be where we wrap this up. I knew this was going to go so incredibly fast. <laughs> and uh, Steve, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sharing your decades of of wisdom with me and with our audience. And uh, really, really appreciate you carving out some time to spend with us today. Oh, Justin, my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And this is a great, great forum. Um, I've started listening to the podcast now. So you have a new convert, uh, which is Fantastic. great. I'm just, just pleased to be able to help wherever I can. Well, you mentioned some other folks here on the show. I'm going to need to get with you after the show to uh, make some introductions because it sounds like some of the other folks that you mentioned earlier from uh, Field Service News and from uh, Service Council would be uh, great candidates to be on the show as well. So I'll circle back around with you and maybe we can make some introductions there as well. Oh, definitely. I'd like to do that. Thank you. That's excellent. All right. Well, to our audience, I hope you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. Uh, thanks again to Steve for participating today. And to our listeners, for your continued engagement with the podcast, we couldn't do this if you uh, didn't keep listening. So thank you for doing that. We're always looking for more ideas on the podcast and more guests. So if anybody out there has other topics that they'd like to see discussed, please feel free to come and join us on the Frontline Innovators LinkedIn page. Share your thoughts on that, and we'd love to uh, get some feedback from you. And a friendly reminder that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the only end-to-end -end systems training platform that's optimized for frontline operations. So if you don't have a bus to do a tour to all the depots, but you're looking for a technology solution in this case, um, you can learn more about how you can solve those training challenges by visiting skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. Thank you. And I look forward to having you on our next podcast. Steve, thanks again. Thank you. 